You're listening to The Lit Review, a podcast where organizers interview organizers about books. In this moment of urgency, mass political education is key. We recognize that political study is not always accessible for a variety of reasons. Our goal with The Lit Review is to be a resource that brings out key information from relevant books to the masses. Think Sparknotes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Monica Trinidad, and thank you for listening to The Lit Review. All right. Thank you for listening to The Lit Review. We're here today with Hoda Katsubi. And Hoda is a member of For the People Artists Collective and Muslims Organize. Um, Hoda, you just got back from an amazing book tour, right? You were yes. on the coasts. Tell us about it really quickly. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Awesome. <laughs> Great That's story. Great story. Will we see a blog post about it? No, probably not. No, okay, cool. We, awesome. Book call. Tehran Street Style. You can catch it on Amazon, but or you can just DM me for it. Nice. We'll have a link. By yes, Todd. there will be a Amazon. link. Awesome. So um, you're here today to talk about the book Orientalism by Edward Said. Um, so can you just, I guess, tell us a little bit about why, why did you read this book? Or like what sort of, do you remember the first time you read it? How, you know, what was your experience? Just like lay it on us. Yeah, for sure. So um, as a Muslim person who is from the Orient, I feel like, I, I really, I had no choice but to read it. It was, it kind of lays out a lot of, like, the violence that I face, the violence that we face. Um, and so it's a, it's a very instrumental piece, not only in better understanding my identity and the way that it's represented here, but also in the way that I can also cause harm um, when also writing about these issues as someone who also writes a lot about um, Muslim issues or Middle Eastern issues. And I actually had this book, so I bought it a long time ago, and it's mm-hmm. always been on my shelf, and I've always wanted to read it, um, but it was always kind of dense, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until my junior year in college uh, with a, my favorite professor, Professor Kashik, that we finally got to read it and delve into it, really, um, in his colonialism class, and it was just mind-blowing for me. So now I reference it in like almost everything that I do. Yeah. So you're saying the Orient, Orientalism. Can you give us a quick rundown as to what are we talking about here? Yeah, so Orientalism is basically um, the way that Edward Said, who is a Palestinian philosopher, um, describes it, is that it's, it's basically a field of study um, or a way in which the West portrays the East without the East's voice present. So mm-hmm. basically it's, it's all of these representation projects that are necessary in order to create the West um, in complete dichotomy to this East that it constructs for its own sort of um, hegemonic and imperialistic purposes. So it's basically like an imperialism of academia. Okay, so I have a follow-up then. Can you tell us, when you're saying things like hegemony, imperialism, can you also help us understand what you mean by that? Yes. Very good question. (laughs) Um, So imperialism being sort of this... Actually, let me define hegemony first because it'll be helpful for defining imperialism. Hegemony is basically a very um, full and complete sort of power and authority over another group of people. So largely we see imperialism, it's always backed by the military, it's uh, justified through the pen, Um, and so we see sort of imperialism as Western, um, or like Western hegemony over the Middle East, or Western hegemony over Africa. So it's basically a very encompassing, whether it's socially, culturally, economically, um, and artistically, that is just kind of a whole encompassing sort of uh, domination of another group of people. Mm-hmm. 
And so I know uh, you mentioned earlier that this book is pretty dense, all right? And so can you walk us through just like how does he lay this book out? Like what is sort of the order that he goes into explaining Orientalism? Yeah, so there's a lot of concepts that kind of set up his framework of understanding this concept. Um, at the very root of this concept of Orientalism is a false dichotomy and a binary. And so, as we know, binaries aren't real <laughs> in any sort of setting. And so the dichotomy in the binary here is that um, when we see the, the West, we always we have this image of modernity, you know, um, as opposed to traditionalism. We see the West as progress as opposed to the, the East as backwards. And specifically, he really centers this around Islam as a kind of a focal point of this theory. Anything that is seen more as Islamic, any woman that dresses more in an Islamic way, quote-unquote, becomes more backwards, more um, traditional, more um, needing of somebody else to speak for them. And so in this dichotomy, there's a lot of different concepts that he runs through in order to kind of um, to feed this. So, for example, the, the idea that the West is modern um, and the East is backwards or needing to catch up in a lot of times. We, we use that a lot, even today, all the time that, oh, the East just isn't there yet, you know, or like there's... And so that's all in this framework, as he describes, as linear time. So the idea that there's one... there's progress in time and that one country can be ahead of another country or that their one country is modern and one country isn't but that's a lie because everyone right now is modern we live in a modern time there's no people who are stuck in history right now everyone is modern and so when we we create modernity to be one single thing for example um all of my work is on Iranian fashion. So if we say Western fashion is modern, you know, that anything that is seen more in Western fashion um, is seen, you know, your, your progress, you know, you, you're ahead of your game. But that's just, um, but that is pitted against something that's backwards again. So this idea of linear time is very central. And so he lays that out also early on. Mm. So um, you had mentioned before we started interviewing that the book, so the book isn't organized chronologically, right? It sort of walks us through the core concepts. Mm -hmm. And so can you tell us more about what those core concepts are and kind of walk us through his main, his main argument? Yeah, so along with linear time, um, also this idea of the gendered aspect of this is really big for Edward Said. The fact that a lot of these traits that um, Western academics or Western media right now portrays the East is very also feminine. We see, um, you know, kind of docility or silence, this kind of needing of saving is very much always associated with femininity, of course, under like a toxic patriarchy here um, in the West. So the way that um, violence is also justified toward women in the West, the whole East is kind of portrayed in that sort of sense. So we see that um, especially women, when described um, in Orientalist ways, there's so much lacking of agency there. Um, and there's so many examples that we can talk about also later um, about like things that we see right now even in the leftist community. Um, but just describing the Orient in feminine terms of sort of wanting to both, um, it's, it's a strong distaste to destroy but also to, to penetrate. Um, and that, that kind of theory of um, like women and the, the East is very much sort of like the exoticization of that um, and like the especially the veil comes a lot up um, under this concept with like you you want to destroy it but you also want to pull it off you know so this this sort of like very masculine sort of power hungry um, and dominate dominating sort of um, concept is very much around the east and that's another thing that he delves into is like the gendered aspect of this as well um, 
And then also the concept of the voiceless, which is also another lie. <laughs> there's no such thing as the voiceless. And there's this quote that I really like, not from Edward Said, <laughs> but um, from Rodanti Roy, who has this really beautiful quote that I think really sums up his writing. And she writes, there's no such thing as the voiceless. There are only the deliberately silenced or the preferably unheard. And I think that very, very much sums up this whole concept that he talks about, about the voiceless. There's no such thing as people who need their voice here. You know, they're just strategically silenced. Um, they're not, their voices aren't here because it would disrupt a lot of the privileges and comfort that the cis-white patriarchy sort of needs, you know. So um, this idea of uh, people in needing of saving or their voice needing to be represented because they can't do it, you know, this, again, lack of agency is also really, really big in his uh, concept of Orientalism. And another concept uh, that he talks about a lot is homogenization. So the homogenization um, of the Middle East and Muslims as all being very similar, all having the same histories, um, family traumas, displacement, when in fact quite the contrary. When you look at someone from Syria, it's not at all someone who has gone through the same experience as Iraq um, or Pakistan. Um, and so they're very, very you know, distinct countries with their own histories. And we were just very quick to say even Arab and Muslims, when in fact I'm not Arab. <laughs> Arabs were actually came close to colonizing Iranians. So to say that, oh, just Arabs or Muslims or the ways that we talk about um, the Middle East as just a group or two groups um, or also uh, is also just very homogenizing in, in that fact, too. And he talks a lot about that in the book. What Edward Said is arguing here or, or is showing us is how Orientalism is sort of, a, I don't know if logic is the right way or like um, a way that the West un, uh, analyzes the East for the sake of hegemonic power, right? Complete domination of the East and also other places. Definitely, but even on top of that, so it, it is definitely, it's, it's always been used to justify sort of colonialism and imperialism, mm -hmm. but not only justify, but accelerate it. So mm -hmm. that's also something that we never really think about, the, the inherent violence of academia and the inherent violence of, potential violence of writing um, and art, you know, um, of everything from fashion to drawing, you know, everything can has, and so that's why also I think the concept of apolitical art is absolutely ridiculous, you know. And so when we think and we see even just like the, especially from like the 1800s and along the time of like a lot of colonialism and the and Africa and the Middle East, we see just even in the journals of travelers that are quote unquote unbiased views from nowhere, you know, that sort of false bullshit. Um, that very much is also playing like right into this. So it wasn't intentionally trying to orientalize for the purpose of his own hegemony. He's just writing what he sees but it's a lot of fabrication, it's a lot of sort of um, creation of false things or just false um, ideas of the way people live and things like that. So, um, yeah, but then also along with the fact of um, wanting to do it for imperialism and justify that and accelerate that, also Orientalism is very necessary for the West in order to create its own identity. So... That's also why, so basically, the, the West creates its identity after it has already created the East and say, we are the opposite of this. So it creates it, it's everything that it sees um, the East to be backwards, sort of, um, especially when there was gender fluidity, they saw that as something that was backwards, so that we needed to be heterosexual, you know, everything that was described and fantasized about um, and exoticized, that led to the creation of the identity of the West. Um, and that's also why I always argue that patriotism, especially for Western countries, is inherently violent. Um, 
an inherently um, oppression, uh, filled with oppression because it's literally built, of course, through um, the subjugation of everything that happened in the violence through this built on, but also because the identity is only because of a violent portrayal of the East. Yeah, it reminds me of, of in math class when you learn you can make a line out of two dots, right? Mm -hmm. But you have to you have to make a dot and then the so it's like saying exactly. this is the east, it is this, <laughs> and then the, and then we are ahead, creating that linearness to mm -hmm. it or linearity or whatever the word is, right? Okay, thank yeah, you. that's actually a really okay perfect example. <laughs> thank you. And so you said Orientalism is used to justify and accelerate colonialism, and that this can happen through art and fashion. Mm -hmm. Does Saeed get into that a little bit in this book? Yeah, so he talks a lot about the arts, mm -hmm. um, about, it's like even on the cover of most of the editions, there's a very sort of orientalized image of a young boy um, who's naked, who has a snake around him, um, sort of snake charming, there's music, you know, this, this image, the rugs in the background, the Arabic, it's very much um, how the Middle East was commonly portrayed mm -hmm. in the arts during the time that he was um, writing this. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it comes from that, but he also, he's specifically uh, critiquing Western academia because they felt that they were um, removed from all of this. They're like, the arts are biased, yes, 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 but like, we are like perfect, like, um, non-biased observers. So that's why this book is specifically critiquing academia, but it definitely encompasses um, everything from art to fashion and everything else in between. And you mentioned that he's Palestinian, or he was yes. Palestinian, right? Does he speak about uh, Palestine as an example of Orientalism at play, mm -hmm. or Israel as Orientalism as play at all? Uh, he definitely talks a lot. Um, Palestine is less so much centered in this book as a lot of his other writing about being in exile and um, just about like the violence um, that, that that kind of has. And it, Of course, it's all tied back into Orientalism, but it's less so much a central focus of this book. So how does this all then lead to imperialism? Right, so um, when you create a group of people as backwards, as um, stupid, as docile, and needing of saving, you are able to then dehumanize them very much. And that happens all the time right now if we see just the ways that Muslims are still portrayed in the media, um, or really any person of color is portrayed in the media right now, is a sort of dehumanization that leads to then the justification um, for their harm, or if harm happens to them accidentally, then it's not really a big issue. You know, it's just just a, an object that is receiving harm. And so that's very deeply intertwined in this, is just the deep dehumanization of a people that is then able to justify this war. But then on top of that, specifically, the hijab is always used by Orientalists, um, and it, it leads to other sort of and encourages other people who have other sort of motives in mind to take that up and also um, encourage war or violence. So, for example, white feminists <laughs> here in the United States um, use the hijab again as like, oh, we need to save the poor brown woman from the angry backwards brown man, you know, and rid her of her hijab, of course. <laughs> and so that was a lot of justification for why the United States invaded Iraq and Afghanistan. So that now is being directly kind of connected to war and directly... Um, being used to justify um, violence at a large scale, but also on an individual scale, when someone will just come up to a person wearing a hijab, and I've had this told me all the time, like, oh, why do you, like, is that just not oppressive? Do you want me to help you take it? Like, someone actually asked me if they wanted me to help my help for them to take it off. And I was like, oh, yeah, it was just been so complicated these past five years. <laughs> Thank you so much for volunteering oh your God. time. I didn't know that one, the clear wrap around my head <laughs> um, was difficult to take off. But, of course, I need the white hands to take it off for me. 
And so, and, and then this also leads again to how um, schools are taught, so the curriculum even, that is created. So we never ever study Eastern philosophers, Eastern religions, or anything like that, written by Eastern people, or even taught by Eastern people. I was in the University of Chicago, and all of my Middle Eastern classes were taught by cis white men, you know, who had just studied it. Um, and the ways that we even study Islam was very different than the ways we were studying Christianity, you know, in like the in early times. And so just even the way that we're taught to think about the East is still constantly being recreated again and again in universities or classes and through the media and things like that. And I'm hearing that it's, it's the, the West articulates it through this linear model of like, oh, they're just, you know, they're not modern yet, they're not here yet, and so we're going into like advancing, but really it's about war, it's about going, it's about justifying imperialism, it's not, it's not rooted in, I mean, it uses that kind of, oh, we're here to save you logic, which is different than like, oh, we're here to enslave you, or we need to, we need your land, and we're gonna pretend you don't exist, right? It's a different logic that upholds militarism and imperialism. Is that mm-hmm. fair? Yeah, and okay. also it's inherent violence itself. So mm-hmm. the, the violence of Orientalism itself mm-hmm. is also a form of, like in and of itself, it's also very problematic. Um, but also on that point, of course, linear time doesn't exist, and that's kind of what Edward Said is talking about. But also, when we look at a lot of these contexts in which we're applying this form of linear time, that also is just completely false. So for example, um, a lot of people right now are saying that the, the gay person is becoming the next hijab for the Middle East, the next sort of token what? of needing to come saving. First it was always the hijab, you know, people need to come in for that, but now they're like, oh, now we need oh, to save the gays. Right. That's like um, sort of the next um, sexy thing that needs saving from the Middle East. And so, like, for example, we'll take Iran as someone who does a lot of reading about Iran. Um, right now, there's a lot of sort of conversations about, oh, it's so homophobic, that's so this, Islam is so homophobic. But we never talk about the fact that before European imperialism with Iran, Iran was largely homosocial. You know, gender fluidity was very normal. These concepts of heterosexuality did not exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was because of imperialism that this sort of cultural shift happened. And now we're coming in and saying, oh, they're behind, when in fact this was Iran's history. Mm-hmm. And if anything, the United States is behind if we are going to be talking about linear time. Um, and so a lot of these also, the, the context in which um, a particular sort of vice is found as behind actually was usually also a product of imperialism itself. And you had mentioned white feminists, for example, as mm-hmm. being people that perpetuate um, orientalism, right? And in, in our circles even, right? And so how... I guess if obviously they're not going to be like, oh, I'm going to go read Edward Said's Orientalism <laughs> and educate myself, you know, like what I guess what are other not even other resources, but like what could be pulled out of this book? Like even if you could just recommend one chapter of them, like the, people need to read this book to like understand, like, is there a specific chapter you would recommend people? The introduction. The introduction. OK. OK. Boom. Yeah. And is that because it sort of summarizes most of the book or is that just because? Definitely. Yeah. Okay. A lot of classes that like even like scribe <laughs> have people read the book orientals and they just read the introduction because okay. it really just says it just says everything in the book yeah okay. like when i'm thinking of like black reconstruction for example and i remember um my partner debbie was actually reading it and was like you know read this one specific chapter because the rest of it is like 
it's like C-SPAN, you know, it's like <laughs> listing all of these dates and times and dates and times. And is that, does he do that in this book too? Or is no. that, no, he doesn't do that. No, okay. this one, um, I think the different chapters talk about different concepts. Okay. So for example, he doesn't talk as much about gender in the introduction as he does elaborate on it in different sections. So you get kind of a, a concise gist of the other concept that he's going to be talking about and elaborating on further, but less dates and times. Okay, all right, cool, cool. Does he talk at all about how, so my understanding is that you're saying it, it, it sort of sparked through academics, mm-hmm. but then does he talk about how that gets proliferated as into like mainstream culture? Because it's not just, acad- like I'm hearing yeah. that this, it's like on every level, like what, and it reaches the point of like how we consume news, how we interpret things, right? Um, all that. So does he talk at all about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he does. He talks about how this it turns into the larger culture of Orientalism, in which it's very difficult for a white person in the United States to not be racist or not even to write a racist piece, even if they're trying, you know, very to be very conscious and things like that, because it's become such a normalized part of society that people don't even think twice about it. Like even like me, even though I've like I read a lot about this, you know, it's part of a lot of my research, I still fail to catch it multiple times because that's just the way that we've been programmed to think. Again, going back to the curriculum, like that's the way exactly that people are taught to think about the East and that, you know, Western philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, blah blah blah, these are philosophers and we'll maybe we'll like throw in someone from India, you know, right. just for like just to see what they think, you know, but it's they're never a real philosopher. Right. You know, we're just tasting what they think. You know, they'll never ever be able to speak about what people think. Yet, this like people um, in like Greco Roman times are the people. You know, and so that sort of the way that we just see like East versus West and people of color versus white people is just very much um, a part of society, and like the way that media interprets things and the way that people just pick up on things, and it's very prolific. Even like from very conservative people who again use it for war to even quote unquote liberals, but even in leftist spaces too, it's very very common and also just mm-hmm. unfortunate to see like it's so intertwined and so innate to people now almost. Mm-hmm. And is it how does he define the Orient? You said it. He focuses on like the ways that Muslims are portrayed, but it's is it so is it like North Africa included or like how is there a limit? Or yeah. A so he. He's mainly focusing on the Middle East from like and like South Asia and Northern Africa, but he has also written on like um, Black Orientalism and like how, of course, there's a very similar concepts that apply to other people of color, but of course with different like um, details. But he also writes a little bit about Africa as a continent, how they're also orientalized in different ways, mm-hmm. um, and the way that their voice is also taken out, and the way that they're also kind of portrayed. So. Cool. So, so what does it mean right now for um, organizers to actually read this book? You know, how how can this relate to any of our organizing, even if we're doing economic justice work or education justice or racial justice? Like, how how important is it for organizers to read this? It relates to all of our organizing, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because even um, even if you're not doing an action or a campaign that directly affects Middle Eastern people or people of the East, quote-unquote, a lot of the same concepts apply to even the people that you want to be working with. So it's also important, like, you can use this concept of Orientalism and this concept of um, speaking for somebody without their voice being present and organizing all the time. Like, for example, if even if, if you're not part of a community and you just want to assume their needs, you know, for example, um, just, like, the ways that you prop yourself up almost um, and want to help people are very much similar to larger imperialistic ways um, that the United States wants to help (laughs) Afghanistan by bombing the shit out of it. 
So um, it's people who are leftist or in the leftist community or radical are not at all um, free from being able to really fall into a lot of these tropes or falling into really um, orientalizing people, whether it is Muslims or like black people on the south side, for example, people in gangs, a lot of these communities that people d look at, I think, a lot of, really differently, even in the organizing community. And can you get can you give an example of what that actually could look like in our in our organizing spaces? Yes, <laughs> you're um, ready. You're so ready. This one comic that I absolutely loathe. Um, it was passed all around my newsfeed on Facebook, everywhere, all over the media. It was this bystander intervention comic. Um, the purest intentions, of course. <laughs> uh, and it, it's a Muslim woman wearing the hijab, sitting alone on the bus, and what to do uh, when you see someone yelling at her. And, of course, it's a white woman who comes to save the day. Um, the, the person is yelling stuff at her, and she looks very sad in the corner, very afraid. And this white woman comes over. She's like, they're like, talk to her, you know? But it wasn't just for Muslim women. It's like, what do you do in bystander, like, mm -hmm. etc. But the way that Muslim women are portrayed is very infantilizing, very much like, come save me, sort of like, I don't have agency. Again, replicating all of these sort of um, larger Orientalist projects. And so that was... Not cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I hope no one shares that ever again. <laughs> mm -hmm. But also, uh, just the, the way that we talk, like for example, right now, Syria. Uh, the way that we have conversations in leftist spaces about Syria, that everyone feels like they're an expert to talk about it, to write about it, and get paid. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But just, they can maybe read one article and then decide that they want to like be the expert on Syria and give their two cents. So many Facebook statuses I saw were like, I know I know nothing about Syria, but... Mm -hmm. And they will start in writing a, a Facebook site. That, that's exactly, you're speaking for a group of people, but you wouldn't do that for another group of people, you know? Like, even here in the West, um, when we see, for example, like... I mean, it happens all the time with people of color, but you see it more with people who are not American. Mm -hmm. So that citizenship or, or, like, sort of coming through this Western academia or this Western institution being seen as valid and being able to speak for themselves, but otherwise... Like you, there's a very low bar for being able to speak about Muslims and Eastern people where there is may not be for other groups of people in the leftist community. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, well, thank you for giving Thanks. a good example <laughs> of that. Um, I'm trying. I'm thinking of another example right now, and I and I'm wondering whether this is Orientalism or not. But there is. You wrote an article about it. The um, get your American flag off my hijab, <laughs> yeah. and it was this piece by Shepard Ferry. It's like um, part of the We the People series, and one of them is portrait of a Muslim woman with an American flag as their hijab. Is that an example of Orientalism or is that different? Um, I mean, it's still a form of harm, <laughs> I yeah, think, but yeah. I wouldn't necessarily... I'm not sure. It feels like some people could characterize as Orientalism, okay. but the part that I would consider Orientalist is just this fascination, again, with the hijab mm -hmm. as, like, the um, identity marker of a Muslim woman, and that is also really problematic, not only to Muslim women, but also to people, women who are Muslim who don't wear the hijab, who now feel that they have to wear the hijab as a precursor for being able to call themselves Muslim. And that's happening a lot right now in the West with increasingly Muslim identity becoming the new sexy identity. You know, everyone wants to like claim it. Everyone wants to hold the image of this uh, Muslim hijab-wearing woman. Um, but, and that's causing a lot of harm. So we see that in the fashion industry a lot too. Everyone wants the Nike pro hijab, for example, mm -hmm. wanting to come out and say we support Muslims, but their sweatshop factories are exploiting Muslims. You know, a lot of these sort of things that we are kind of centering and um, viewing the hijab as like the identity period of Muslim women um, is very harmful. So in that sense, it could be seen as mm -hmm. Orientalist, okay. but 
more just like silly American patriotism. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right, so I think uh, we're we're um, near that time, and I'm wondering if you could read your uh, quote that you particularly love. If you have two, all right, <laughs> you have two. You have two. <laughs> You're like I have two. <laughs> um, so the first one kind of sums up the book, and the second one is just a very like piercing one. Mm, okay, my favorites. Um, so he writes. From the beginning of Western speculation about the Orient, the one thing the Orient could not do was represent itself. Evidence of the Orient was only credible after it had passed through and been made form by the refining fire of the Orientalist work or lens. Hmm. I don't remember what page number that's on. <laughs> but, uh, and then the second quote is on page 207 of the nice looking book. <laughs> Um, he writes that Orientals were rarely seen or looked at. They were seen through, analyzed not as citizens or even people, but as problems to be solved or confined. Yeah, and then the, it just goes on. Or the colonial powers openly conveyed their territory taken over. So just very much as in that, going back to that dehumanization and wanting, and again, like the Syria issue too, of just wanting to solve these issues, you know, wanting to see these as kind of fun intellectual games where people can like, Think about you know solving the world's problems, but without actually having any of their actual voices present. Mm. All right. Well, thank you very much for being on thank this episode. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Hoda. Of course. I'm def. I'm so excited to to read this book this year. I'm That's gonna read the goal. introduction. Um, hey. <laughs> All right. So this was an episode of the Lit Review. We were talking Orientalism with Hoda, who you should check out her book. Tenhansu style. <laughs> hey, we'll have a link on the site uh, attached to this podcast, and keep reading. Keep reading. Thank you for listening to the Lit Review Podcast. Again, I'm one of your hosts, Monica Trinidad, and we just had a conversation with Hoda Ketabi about Orientalism by Edward Said. Be sure to follow Hoda on Twitter at Hoda Ketabi and check out her book, Tehran Street Style. Special shout out to the Lit Review's very special sponsor, the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership out of Kalamazoo College in Michigan. Want to hear about a specific book? Email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. If you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at litreviewshy. Tune in next Monday. Push these livers like this.